Buenos dias. Bonjour. Good morning. It is so great to be with you today. So great to be speaking English again. I got most of my Spanish out of my system the last two and a half weeks I've been in the States. My mom complimented me. She said, you're doing much better with your, mo with your mother tongue. So it's good to be here um, speaking with you, getting to see you again after a few turbulent years that have passed. But it's so great to be here. I live in this city. We call it the city, uh, la ciudad de la furia, the city of fury. Or we call it the concrete jungle. Um, it's a mess, but I love it. <laughs> And I love living there. But it's so good to be here with all of you. I wanted to thank you guys so much for um, helping me purchase a home. I'll talk more about this later. This is my home. My front door is on the left. Um, you go up 25 stairs and you're in my house. Um, it's a blessing. It's an exciting thing. It's a challenge. I can't call anyone else when something is broken now. I have to fix it myself. As my grandfather used to say, you can't fix anything. But I used to remind him that I can ask a plumber to come over in four different languages. <laughs> It's still really expensive not to be able to fix anything. Uh, my grandpa haunts me from the grave whenever I have to call someone. But I am so thankful for your generosity, for your love, and for what this house represents. Even more importantly, this is a place I welcome people into my home, uh, where we sit down, where we talk about life, where we cry together, where we share our hopes and fears. This is the place I spent quarantine teaching on Zoom. <laughs> um, this is um, just a place where I try and um, be alone with God and then share with other people what God has graciously taught me. So thank you so much for your love and for your generosity, for your new support. Um, I'll be talking today about the mission of God and about faith, but um, a house is where we build relationships. It's where we welcome people in to encounter God, to encounter his grace, to encounter his love, and having that space has definitely been a blessing. I want to start with one of Paul's prayers in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? I love these prayers of Paul. When it says, may he give you a spirit of wisdom or revelation as you come to know him, this isn't so much head knowledge. This is more about an encounter with God, coming to know God as we are known by him. And that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. We live in a very different world. 
than our grandparents and our great-grandparents did. And 500 years ago, the world has changed so much. Um, there's been a scientific revolution, industrial revolution. Things have changed. Um, time is no longer told by church bells, but by watches. And our work week is exactly that. It's built on work. Um, meals are based on what times we can get off work, what time we can have a break for our meals. The world used to be enchanted. There was, there was magic. There was faith. And like I said, there were church bells telling time for us. There was a Christian calendar that told us what time of the year it was. We knew it was harvest because we were celebrating some Christian festival. But those times are, seem to be long gone for many people. The world was once enchanted and the purpose of faith was to be encountered by God. To encounter God, to find him to know him, to be in fellowship and communion with him. And the purpose of that was to be healed by him. Early Christian theologians talked about sin as sickness and Christ as the great physician, the, the, the medic par excellence. But now faith seems to be about more about being good than encountering God himself. So many people in their 20s and 30s and 40s are leaving the church. Because if faith is about being good, I don't need the church to be good. I can be good on my own. But if faith is about encountering God, I need this messy bunch of brothers and sisters to help me know God. I can see the face of Christ in my brothers and sisters. But if faith is being about being good... I don't need anyone else. I can do it on my own. I think I can, right? But faith is much more than about being good. Ignatius of Antioch was uh, one of the early leaders of the early church, what we call an apostolic father, and he wrote several letters to Christians as he was being taken from Syria to Rome to die, uh, a, a public martyrdom. He had been arrested and was taken expressly to Rome to die for his faith. And he wrote about sound doctrine. He wrote about the unity of the church. He said, be aware that Christ was fully man and fully God. And those who deny this teaching do not love their neighbor. So know who Jesus is. But in his letter to the Roman Christians, he said, don't keep me from being martyred. Don't intercede for me on, don't intercede on my behalf to escape so that I can escape death. And I have a hunch. He didn't come out and say it. But reading his letters, I think what he's saying is, my faith is worth dying for. And I want people to know that the the gospel truth, the truth that Jesus is God and man, and he's come to save us, that he's the doctor, that he's the physician that can heal us, that's a truth worth dying for. And he died for his faith. But before he did, he wrote these words. There is only one physician, very flesh yet spirit too, uncreated and yet born, God and man in one agreed, very life and death indeed, fruit of God and Mary's seed, at once impassable, unable to suffer, and torn by pain and suffering here below, Jesus Christ, whom as our Lord we know. Is our faith worth dying for? I think so. But we're trying to get many people just to live their faith. We're not even talking about martyrdom. We're talking about what does it mean to live for God on a daily basis. 
Wichita is not the most secular city in North America. If you've been to New York, if you've been to Chicago or to Boston, you will see very secular cities. We've seen cathedrals turned into nightclubs. We've seen churches being sold. Um, and here it looks a little different, but um, it seems that most America is, is going this direction. So what does it look like to live in a secular city or in a more secular country? It means three different things, according to Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. It means absence of God in public spaces. We no longer take into account the revelation of God when making decisions about politics or legislation. It means a decline of belief and a practice of religion. There are few, fewer people every day interested in institutional religion or in church or in organized religion. And lastly, faith is no longer axiomatic. That's just a big fancy word to say. Not everyone believes and not everyone is expected to believe. 600 years ago, 700 years ago in, in Western Europe, we thought that everyone believed. And if you didn't believe, you were the odd man out. But today in secular cities, if you believe, you might be the odd man out. What does that mean for us as Christians? What does it mean for faith? There's two kinds of people in the secular city. There are people who are open to the transcendent, to a belief in God, to the supernatural, to something beyond ourselves. And there are people who are close to that idea. People who are open and people who are close to that idea. And there are people who search inside of themselves for meaning. And there are people who search outside of themselves. Christians are open and they search outside of themselves. We know that we cannot save ourselves. We know that we are sick with sin and we must find someone outside of ourselves to save us. But there are many people who look inside for that salvation. All of us, all human beings, are searching for what we call the good life. And the good life has a history in philosophy and theology and it talks about the desired life. What is the life worth living? Young people are trying to figure it out. Older people are trying to figure it out as well. Christians are trying to discover what is the good life. We know that the good life is the Jesus life, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We know that, but we're still trying to figure out what that looks like in everyday life. Well, secular people, people who don't necessarily believe in God, are also trying to discover what is the good life, what is the life worth living and we see evidence of that. We see dictators who want to stay in power because the good life is power. We see people who accumulate more wealth than they could possibly spend in their lifetime. They're trying to discover what the good life is through money. We see all different attempts at the good life. The desired life in a secular society is a state of fullness and richness. Uh, it's mobilizing and inspiring. It's a state of peace and tranquility, joy and satisfaction. How many of you have tried to share your faith with people and they say, I'm actually doing quite well, thank you. I don't need God. I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm in a state of peace and tranquility, joy and satisfaction. They may not say it like that. But they think they've arrived at the good life. And if... The Christian life is all about finding peace and tranquility, joy and satisfaction. So maybe you don't need God. But once again, if faith is about an encounter with the living God and the creator of the universe, then maybe 
we do need more than this desired life. What happens to Christians, what happens to secular people as well, is difficulties arise. A death of a loved one, a pandemic, and people start freaking out. My desired life ended as quick as it began. The person I thought I was going to love forever no longer loves me. The person that I love has passed away. These difficulties arise, but also beautiful things arise and take people off guard like births of children, sunsets, walks on the beach, love. It's not only the bad things in life that shake us up and say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? It's the good things in life too. It's generosity, it's friendship, it's caring. It's true Christian love. And so people begin to feel a state of exile or emotional or spiritual distance. Things aren't going as they should. Life isn't fair. Often we say, I'm depressed. I'm stressed. I'm anxious. What does it look like to be in a state of melancholy or confusion when we discover that the life that we thought we were living is not the life that we actually have. In the secular city, who struggles with the good life? All of us. All of us are having a hard time figuring out what the good life is. I truly believe that Jesus is the good life. I don't have to guess. I believe that I have that conviction and I search for that good life in Christ. But it's hard. If we're honest, it's hard. And there can be times where we doubt There can be times where we struggle to live that good life. But secular people also doubt. Secular people are becoming disenchanted with the disenchanted world they live in. They're becoming skeptical about their skepticism. And what are we going to do about that? Augustine, a North African theologian, wrote, You have made us God for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. He wrote the first autobiography in the West. And it's a theological autobiography. He talks about his own story as the story of every man and woman. And he said, God, I was restless. I, I searched out for power, for prestige. I fell in love. I had a kid. I thought I had it made. I was teaching Um, oratory and rhetoric in Rome, but I was restless until I rested in you. My conviction as a missionary is that we will all be restless until we rest in God. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest unto your souls. But God's greatest gift to us is not salvation. I know that sounds strange. But his greatest gift to us is not salvation nor forgiveness of sins. The greatest thing my university did for me was not give me a diploma, but taught me how to work at my profession. The greatest gift God gives us is not a ticket to heaven or to new creation. It's the gift of himself. God's greatest gift to humanity is the gift of himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, says that all religion strives for happiness. 
And Christianity is the end all to all religion because it doesn't offer happiness. Have you noticed? Are you always happy? Happiness happens to us, but we can't make happiness. We can fake it. Americans are good at faking things. When we're not happy, we just go out and buy something. And that makes us happy for a little while. Then we have to buy something else. Religion offers happiness, but God in Christianity offers himself. He offers grace. When I read the newspaper, when I see cable news, what do we need here in this country? Happiness? I think we need grace. And that's exactly what Jesus offers us. He offers us his grace. So what is faith? What does faith look like in these difficult times that we're living in? Faith is belief. It's believing in God. It's believing God. Not just believing he exists, but believing what he says. Faith is trusting God. It's saying God is worthy of my trust, of my confidence. I will do what he says. But faith is also perception. We talk about walking by faith. In a secular city, in a secular context, people don't see God on the move. People don't see God at work. People see a storm and they see cold fronts, they see chemistry, they see biology, but they don't see the power of God. When they see a baby, they see biology. They don't see a loving creator who makes us and loves us and makes us in such a way that we can know him and know others, know him through other people. So God seems hidden in our secular society because we have chosen to believe more in science, to believe in rationality, to be head people and not heart people. But faith is also perception. Faith is being able to see what we can only see with the eyes of faith. So what does mission work look like in the secular city? What does it look like even more in America? What does living like a Christian look like in the secular city? I don't have all the answers, but I've thought long and hard about it, and I'll give you a few suggestions today and some examples from our church. This is our church in times of COVID, and we're still in covid But this is our church, Uh, this is our first meeting together after about a year. We were able to meet at a park, and it was so good to see one another again. This is another meeting more recently of our church. What does faith look like in a secular city? It looks a lot like faith in in other contexts as well. Um, There's teaching, there's encouraging There's exhorting, there's correcting brothers and sisters who have have gone astray. Um, But there's also taking care of people. Letting people know that they're worthy of God's love and grace, not because of what they've done, because of what Jesus has done for them. It's giving them food, it's helping them out financially. It's telling them about Christ, it's encouraging them. It's teaching them how to pray, that's what spiritual direction is. I can't fix anybody, but I can help you learn how to pray for what you're going through. It's pastoral counseling. It's families in conflict. Imagine being stuck with your family in a house for a year. That's hard for any family, right? Pastoral counseling. 
It means small group discipleship meetings. It's meeting with the same three people every week to read the Gospel of Mark and say, look how amazing Jesus' life was. How can I be more like him? How is his story my story? How can I live into that story that Jesus is telling? It's creating space for deep conversations about faith, hope, and love. And you don't even have to invite people into your house to do this. You can create sacred space at Starbucks. Believe it or not, you can create a safe space for people to open up and tell you about that angst, that that anxiety that they feel because their life isn't going the way it is. And that's when you can talk about a God who reaches out to us, who gives us his grace. Creating safe space for deep conversations Honoring and taking care of families. So many people in the secular city don't have time for families, don't have time for kids. So we honor them and we take care of them. We teach our young people about Jesus. Teaching young people that work and study are important, but more important is to find their vocation for Christian service, to be on mission with God. You can have Middle-class respectability. You can be married, have 2.5 children, is it? 2.2 children, a dog, and a mortgage. But that doesn't make you who Christ wants you to be. What Christ wants you to do is to follow him and to lead others in that same way. We can mentor young Christian leaders for further service in the kingdom. It's about letting people know that despite their past, despite their sin, despite their hang-ups and hurts, that God is redeeming them and there is no one better to point to God's redemption as someone who is being redeemed. A perfect missionary is a lousy missionary. Because people say, oh, I can't do that. That's not for me. You talk about Jesus being the physician, about the church being a hospital, but it looks like everyone's all right already. So it's letting young people know that they have a lot to offer, not because of what they have done, but what Christ is doing in and through us. In a secular city, one way of sharing faith is offering friendship in the name of Jesus. In cities, people live a series of transactions every day. Um, We don't have a super Walmart, So if I'm going to make a meal, I might go to five different stores. (coughs) Excuse me. I might go to five different stores to buy things for the meal. And that means five different transactions. And maybe I'll know one or two of the salesmen, and maybe I won't. But every day, I'm a client, I'm a passenger, but I'm not always a friend. I'm not always a neighbor. So offering friendship in the name of Jesus means, I see you. I want to be with you. You are someone who is desired by God. Someone I am learning to know and to love, and I want to be in your presence. Ultimately, because that's what God has done with me. That's what Jesus has done with me. So we offer friendship in the name of Jesus. We make our house a home for others. We don't have to have the best house. This isn't southern hospitality. You don't have to have sweet tea. 
All you have to do is open up your space and allow it to become some other person's space as well. Honoring the stranger, the foreigner, in the name of Jesus. We'll talk about this tonight. But in the ancient world, strangers and foreigners were always welcomed because it was possibly God in the form of a stranger. Genesis 18 talks about that. We can entertain angels without knowing it. So we honor the stranger, we honor the foreigner in the name of Jesus. We study the life of Jesus together, asking, us, asking God to make us more like him. Faith is about belief, it's about trust, and it's about perception. Are we living in such a way that people will ask us about the hope that we have? Can they see God moving in our lives? Are we reflecting his image to other people? Are we reflecting his glory? Will they notice our love? Is our friendship any different than the friends they make at work? Is our hospitality any different than the world's hospitality? We'll end with a few questions. Have we focused on ourselves so much, either trying to be good or, or trying to do what we think is right? Have we focused so much on ourselves that we are indifferent about an encounter with God, our Creator? Are we just trying to be the right person we're called to be? And are we trying to be that person apart from an encounter with God? Are we so comfortable in Babylon, Buenos Aires or Wichita, that we live just like everybody else? Are we any different? And are we living in such a way that people want to know what animates our love and compassion? Christians in the early church, when they began to be persecuted, were called atheists. And they were called strange people. Are we afraid of being strange? They were called atheists because they didn't worship the Roman emperor. But they were called strange because they would help people out who were from a different social class. Because they cared about the foreigners. They would invite people in off the, off the streets to come and stay at their house. They would bury the dead. They would bury the dead who weren't their dead. They would bury other people. And people said, they are so strange. Let's figure out who they are. How are we living today? We want to, to help anyone who wants to have an encounter with the living God. There isn't a burning bush that I'm aware of. Um, I don't know of a place where you can wrestle with an angel like Jacob did. But we want to help you encounter the living Christ, um, who is Lord of this church and Lord of our lives. If we can help you today or with any other need, the elders will be down here up at the front. God bless you.